You're listening to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. Um, time to get in the Word, but before we do that, we need to pray. We have our four prayer points, right? And pray for yourself that God speaks to you. Pray for those that are sitting with you, in front of you, behind you. Uh, pray for those online watching as well. Uh, pray for those that maybe don't have a relationship with the Lord, and then pray for me that I'm obedient to what it is that God has put on my heart to do and uh, any change or correction that needs to happen in my life as well. So let's pray. Father, we, we do ask that you speak to us. You know where each person in this room, each person online is. You know our strengths, you know our struggles. So Lord, we're asking that you would speak to us this morning. Speak to us through your word. Send your Holy Spirit to remove anything that's not of you. Speak to us individually and speak to us corporately as a church. Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, Father, would you draw them into relationship with you? Would you send your Holy Spirit to minister to them? Send others to, to proclaim hope as well. And Lord, I also pray that you speak to me and through me. Lord, bring direction or correction in my life. And Lord, let me be obedient to what you have put on my heart for this morning. But in that, let it be your word that is heard, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, every time we get into this study, we remember Revelation 1-3, and we probably should have it memorized by the time we're done with this study. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 today. We're going to do the whole chapter. It's only 11 verses, uh, and the title is Heaven Bound. So today is that transition to the fourth chapter of the book in Revelation. The things which shall take place after this. Remember, Revelation 119 is the actual outline for the book. John is to write down the things he has seen, that is the past, the things that are, those things in his present, and then the things to be, that is of, of the future. The phrase after these things is metatauta. In the Greek, it, in Revelation one nineteen, it's repeated twice. And then in Revelation 4.1 today, we see it again. This, this is a third marking point for this book, that which will take place. So perspective switches now. It shifts. It's a heavenly perspective, looking down onto the earth. And really, to be honest, we don't think of or don't study heaven as much as we probably should. We get kind of caught up with what's around us. And if we think of heaven, we have this Hollywood version in our mind, maybe some kind of a, a castle from Disney and little fat chubby angels floating around on clouds, one with a harp, the other with a bow and arrow maybe, I don't know, Cupid. But that's our perspective. But if we study God's word, we can have an idea of what heaven is like. 
Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, Ezekiel 1, Exodus, all those that describe heaven, and, and really Exodus describes the tabernacle, and symbolically it describes heaven as well. John uses symbolism as he describes heavenly things, but not everything is symbolic. Jesus used parables to teach. It was a way to communicate a, a thought or an idea. He used different stories to convey that thought or idea. But sometimes we try too hard to bring special significance to something that was not intended. We need to view God's word discerningly. We need to ask that the Holy Spirit would, would show us what he is saying and, and not assign our own interpretation or the world's interpretation to something. It's our reminder as we study the book of Revelations to not get ahead of it, to not get caught up in conspiracy, to not take things out of context. As John unfolds this before us, we remember that using symbolic pictures and words is always going to be less than reality meaning that the description we get of heaven, as great as it looks, is, is less than accurate. Heaven is far more beautiful, far more majestic than we could possibly think or imagine. Spurgeon said, it is very little that we can know of the future state, but we may be quite sure that we know as much as is good for us. We ought to be as content with that which is not revealed as with that, that which is. If God wills us not to know, then we should be satisfied not to know. Depend on it. He has told us all about heaven that is necessary to bring us there. And if he had revealed more, what would have served rather for the gratification of our curiosity than the increase of grace? I think that's something that's really good to understand. God has given us just enough about heaven to get us there. That's what we need to know. Now, can we wonder and search and pray and look for? Sure, we can. But he's given us what you need and given us what we need for the day. There are many things that we simply must believe in faith and trust. Things that we can't fully understand. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. And we trust in that. And as we move forward in the study of Revelation, chapters 4 through 19, we see God's judgment upon the world that happens before the return of Jesus and his earthly reign. A period of time known as the Messianic Woes, or you probably more know it more as the Great Tribulation. As great and inviting as the imagery of heaven is, as we think about that majesty and that beauty, the same is true of God's judgments. Great and yet terrifying at the same time. A seven-sealed scroll, seven trumpets, seven signs, and seven bowls of God's wrath poured out. But chapter 4 introduces us to the very place that judgment comes from. I don't know, I'm pretty good about visualizing things, and I never really think of judgment coming from the throne room. Kind of picture God out on the edge of the cloud looking down, right? That's our, again, our worldly view thinking of where judgment comes from, it shouldn't strike fear within us in a sense of dread, but actually a, a fear of God, a, a reverence, a sense of awe of God's power, of his majesty. Yes, of course, of his love and, and the creation that we live in, but also the power that God actually has and the ability to bring judgment. John enters heaven 
verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, and it said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after these things. After these things. Caleb took us through, and I gave him a hard assignment last week. I, I said, you know, because I want him to be teaching in Revelation as we go. And I said, I want you to do an overview of what we just did in the seven churches. So he had to take seven weeks worth of messages and put it into one, which he did nicely. But we were reminded of where we should be individually and corporately as a church. The reality is that each of us need to get our house in order, so to speak, spiritually. And after Jesus was finished speaking to the churches, then John experienced the vision of revelation in in heaven the the first voice which i had heard that first voice that spoke to him in revelation 110 it spoke to him again here it's the voice of jesus jesus called john up to heaven the voice spoke loud like a trumpet a trumpet that would gather a congregation of israel together or an army for battle one of these sundays i'm just warning you you're going to hear a shofar blasting here don't be scared but there's something about that thought of how sharp and how pointed Jesus said, come up here now. There's some things that I need to show you, things that must take place. Things that must take place in the future, not, not in John's time, not in his present day. Now, there are some who interpret that John saw from here in chapter 4 through chapter 19 as fulfilled in what took place before John's day, notably the Roman invasion and the destruction of of Jerusalem. However, Jesus clearly told John that he would show him things that must take place after this. Yet there are others who interpret what John saw up through Revelation 19 as fulfilled in history after John's day, but before our present day. But these events have yet to be fulfilled in any sort of literal sense. They can only be said to have been fulfilled by making them wildly symbolic. But I, and collectively probably the majority of us this morning, regard what Jesus will show John in the following chapters of Revelation as belonging to the future as to preceding the coming reign of Jesus on earth. That's the hope that we hold on to. Like a trumpet, come up here, he says. Many, including myself, see John's going up to heaven as a symbol of the rapture of the church. John was called up to heaven by a voice that sounds like a trumpet, just as the church will be, will be as described in First Thessalonians four sixteen through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord always. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Because that's our hope. This describes the very moment the church, that is us, Christians, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. It's that moment that we're taken up and the Lord comes to get us. The dead in Christ rise first. They receive their glorified bodies and those who are alive will be gathered directly into his presence. We get to talk about that as we go through the book of Revelation as well. However, this should not be confused with the second coming of the Lord. 
That's when Jesus stands upon the Mount of Olives and establishes his kingdom on earth as in Matthew 25. The rapture begins, the wedding supper of the Lamb, Matthew 25, 1 through 13. The second coming takes place after the banquet has concluded in Revelations chapter 19 and 20. This is known as the rapture, the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made in John 14. He went to prepare a place for us, a place for us to be together with him forever. He is our faithful bridegroom, and we can be sure that Christ will return to take our, us to our new eternal heavenly home. And if we don't know that exact moment that he's coming, well, that's okay. We still have hope in his return it's a reason to be confident. It's a reason to be comforted, to be insured and assured, to be encouraged about death and the life to come. Why? Well, because we have Jesus Christ living inside of us. Just as the grave could not hold Jesus, it will be, not be the final destination of any of us who believe in him. A body that goes to the grave, that's just the body. Eventually, it'll be reunited with your soul. Because we have Jesus Christ living inside of us. All of this happened before the great wrath that will be described beginning in Revelation 6. And as a great judgment on the earth unfolded, John, a representative of the church, was in heaven and he was looking down at the earth. And there's something else that's significant here. The word church, which we've heard up until this point, the word church never occurs in the chapters describing this period of judgment on earth. Nowhere in Revelation chapters 4 through 19 is the church mentioned. So a question for you this morning is, are you ready for him to take you up? Are you ready for him to call you up? Or, or do you want to get married first? Maybe you have a baby, you, you want that promotion. Uh, maybe you're retired and you want to spend that 401k that is now worth half of what it used to be. But the reality is that we should be striving to be ready on a daily basis. Doesn't mean that we don't do those other things and take care of those other things, but we should be longing for and looking for his return, ready to leave all this behind. None of this stuff matters. All that matters is that we're right with the Lord and we're ready to spend eternity with him, regardless of where we are in life. We are to be here now, present, about our Father's business. Do what it is that God has called you to do. Bring hope to those that God brings across your path. Revelations 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 2 says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and the one sitting on the throne. See, John had already, he said he was already in the Spirit in Revelation 1.10. This was yet a little different experience as John came to heaven and a heavenly perspective. In the Spirit, where was his body? Was John's body in heaven also, or was it just his spirit? And this is impossible to know. Uh, Paul, when he had his heavenly experience, didn't know if he was in body or not. You can check out 2 Corinthians 12, 1-4 later. The scripture mentions that there are three heavens. First, surrounds the earth. It produces rain, snow, etc., right? Our weather patterns. The second is what we know as space. It contains the stars, the sun, the, the moon, the planets, the galaxies. Think about how massive that is. But then the third heaven, it's identified in scripture as paradise. Paradise. 
After careful study of this passage and reading other commentaries, the answer to the question of, is John's body physically in heaven as he experiences this? The answer is emphatically, I don't know. Regardless, though, of where we see him and where he's at, we see him move forward with what Jesus is showing him. So we can't get caught up on some of those things. The point is to focus on the description and the beginning description of what as he's seeing in heaven. In verse 2, a throne that was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. This throne was the, the first thing that impressed John. It's the centerpiece of his vision. John was fixated on the occupied throne and everything else is described in relation to the throne. The throne is the centerpiece. It's interesting, if we take a look at atheism or materialism, we see that there is no throne, no seat of authority or power that the universe in its entirety must answer to. But the reality is, there is a throne, but it is man who sits on that throne. So you see, regardless of your political standing or your worldview, man cannot live without the concept of a throne or a supreme ruler. So if man dethrones God, he will place himself or some other man upon that throne. Perhaps a political leader, as was the case with dictators like Lenin, Stalin, Mao, or Mao, or even a president, Obama, Biden, Trump. We tend to elevate people into positions of power and authority to guide us and direct us. Early on in the Israelites even begged God for a king when God had already been directly engaging with them and leading them. You see, only God will rule with true justice and authority. One sitting on the throne, the throne is not empty. There is someone who sits on that great heavenly throne. The throne is a powerful declaration, not merely of God's presence, but his sovereign, rightful reign and his prerogative to judge. As Christians, we don't like to talk about judgment People don't like to talk about judgment overall, do they? Morgan said that we can't think rightly about much of anything until we settle in our mind that there is an occupied throne in heaven and the God of the Bible rules from that throne. And while there may be many differing interpretations and fundamental truths that are self-evident, at the center of everything is an occupied throne. God's sovereignty God has the ability to do anything, to take action and intervene in any situation, but he often chooses to act indirectly or allow certain things to happen for his reasons, for his will. His will is furthered in any case. God's sovereignty means that he is an absolute in authority and unrestricted in his supremacy. Everything that happens is, the very least, the result of God's permissive will. This holds true even if certain specific things are not what he would prefer. You know that God wants to bless you. You know that God wants, wants to see you prosper. But sometimes we make decisions that don't cause us to prosper, don't we? The right of God to allow all mankind free choices is just as necessary for true sovereignty as his ability to enact his will whenever and however he chooses so a question for you this morning is then, what are you focused on as you live life? Who or what is on the throne? 
And do you hold to the fact that God is sovereign, not just in our world and in this creation, but do you hold to the fact that God is sovereign in your personal life? Verse 3, And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. What John saw was a heavenly throne. As John described the occupant of the throne, he did not describe a distinct figure. Clark said there is no description of the divine being so as to point to any similitude, shape, or dimension. The description rather aims to point out the surrounding glory and effluence than a person of the Almighty King. You know, if you were to describe me, you would say, yeah, there's that guy, he's kind of big, he's bald, he's got a beard, it's unkept. That's that piece. The only glow I have about me is because the lights are shining on my head. He points out the fact of what's coming out of that glory that's coming off of the throne and around him. So instead of describing the form or figure, John described the emanations of glistening light in two colors, white, jasper, it may mean diamond, and, and the other is red, sardis, sardius. Um, perhaps the two colors are meant to communicate glory of the empty tomb, white being the empty tomb, Matthew 28, or the sacrificial love of Calvary, red, indicating the blood that was shed. Or perhaps it's linked to the first and last gems in the high priest's breastplate in Exodus 39. Then the throne was surrounded by a green-hued rainbow, like an emerald in appearance. The rainbow, when we think about the rainbow, it's, a, it's an amazing reminder of God's commitment to his covenant with man. Genesis 9, 11 through 17 shows us God's covenant to man, that, that he will not flood the earth again to kill everyone that's here. See, the rainbow is not a sign of pride and of sin, as our society has made it to be. It's a sign of promise. A throne says, I can do whatever I want because I rule. A promise says, I will fulfill this word to you, and I cannot do otherwise. A rainbow around the throne is a remarkable thing, showing that God will always limit himself by his own promises. His word is true. It is yes and amen. It will be complete. The believer glories in the sovereignty of God because he knows that God's sovereignty is on his side. It means that no good purpose of God relating to the believer will ever be left undone. It is a promise to say that God will complete what he has started in you. Bring it to completion. But you also have to exercise your free will to make sure it is done. Spurgeon said, O child of God, thy heavenly Father in his sovereignty has the right to do with you, his child, as he pleases. But he will never let that sovereignty get out of the limit of his covenant. As a sovereign, he might cast you away, but he has promised that he will never cast you away. As a sovereign, he might leave you to perish, but he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. As a sovereign, he might, uh, you might suffer, you might be tempted beyond your strength, but he's promised you that no temptation shall happen to you, but such as common to man. And listen, he will, with that temptation, make a way for you to escape. That's a promise. Have you ever looked at the promises of God? If you, if you look them up, there's a, almost 7,500 promises that, that scholars have pulled out of God's word. Promise of salvation, answered prayers, that we can live in victory over sin. There's assurance of forgiveness and assurance of his guidance, just to name a few. I want to go back to that statement, though. 
You see, you do not have to give in to temptation. I can guarantee as soon as you are ready to do something that you know that you're not supposed to do, God will give you. He'll send that small, still voice of the Holy Spirit. You know you shouldn't do this. You know you need to go a different direction. It's at that point that we make that conscious decision to say, I'm either going to follow God and not step into this, or I'm going to follow the flesh and give in. He will always give you an opportunity to step out and away from it. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Before the elders caught John's eye, he noticed the thrones that, that were there, that they sat on. 24 elders sat on these lesser thrones around the central throne. Then at the end of our passage, John is going to mention their worship. Upon the thrones, 24 elders. Who are these 24 elders? Commentators debate whether they are glorified human beings or angelic, angelic beings. Taking all things into consideration, the, the elders certainly seem to be, represent God's people, his creation. Elders representing the people of God, especially in the Old Testament. In 24 courses, the priesthood represented all the priests in First Chronicles. Then there's the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles representing the faithful that follow him. Later in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, the 24 elders sang a song of praise to Jesus, and they cried out, For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In that passage, 24 elders clearly spoke as representatives of all of God's people, a great company of the redeemed, clothed in white garments, golden crowns upon their head, the white robes and crowns of the elders seem to indicate that they were indeed human beings in glory, of course. Angels are sometimes presented in white robes and garments, but saints also have white robes as a picture of their imputed righteousness. However, we never see angels crowned, but believers will be. Therefore, redeemed, glorified man sits enthroned with Jesus on lesser thrones, to be sure, but thrones nonetheless. We are joint heirs with Christ, and we will reign with him. This is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. So too, if we want to be elders, ministers, servants here on this earth, we must be those who sit in the presence of God. Those who seek out people who are hurting and point them to the Lord. We must be those who share truth and those who sing a new song of, of something that God is doing today in this very hour. That's the power of your testimony. But I would ask you, are you sitting in God's presence, worshiping and learning? Are you seeking those who are hurting 
They're everywhere around us. It's one thing for us to come in on a Sunday morning and Caleb leads us in song and the team leads us in song and we worship on a Sunday morning. That's great. That's good for us to do that. But are you doing that every day? Are you shutting off the noise and the clutter and everything that's distracting around you and just worshiping the Lord? It's his presence that we need to seek to be in. And then we need to look for those who are hurting because I guarantee they're everywhere around you. They're at King Supers, they're at Home Depot, they're at the restaurant that you're having lunch at today. Are you watching for them? I challenged the team this morning before we came in here for first service as we prayed to be ready to pray with somebody, to be ready to engage because everybody who comes into this place has something that they need God to intervene in. Or there's just encouragement or it's even something deeper. There's always somebody around us that we can give hope to. Amen? Amen. You guys still with me? Verse 5, out of the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Impressive and terrifying images. How many like storm watching? I like to watch storms from a distance. I'm not like a storm chaser. It's kind of impressive to watch it from a distance, but as it gets closer and you see the, the power of that storm, it gets a little unnerving. I can't even imagine what he's seeing at this point, the flashes of lightning and the peals of thunder. Lightning and thunder, voices and fire, reminiscence of God's fearful presence in Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. These images communicate the awe associated with the throne of God. Then we have the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits of God is referred to in Revelation 1.4 and Isaiah 11.1. It's represented by seven burning lamps. In other passages in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is represented as a, a dove in Matthew 3 or a flame of fire in Acts 2. The lamps of fire are important because the Holy Spirit is not ordinarily visible. To become visible, he represents himself in the physical form like a dove or a tongue of fire. The first part of verse 6, and before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Is this sea really made of glass or did it just look like it? Commentators are divided on this point. For example, Robertson says appearance and not material. Alfred says it's material, not appearance. Whether it looks like glass or is actually made of glass, it is the finest of glass, like crystal. This body of water before the throne is reminiscent of the laver in the tabernacle. It's where the washing of the water of the word would happen. Trapp says the word of God is to us a crystal glass, giving us clear sight of God and of ourselves. As we wash ourselves with the word of God, we know and understand. We see more clearly of who God is. As we wash ourselves with the word of God, we see who we are, don't we? And there's some things that need to be changed, some things that need to be adjusted, and there's some good things that are there too. Let the word of God wash you. Exodus 34, 30 says, when Moses returned to the camp after receiving the Ten Commandments of God, the skin of his face shone, and the people of Israel were afraid to come near him. So you see, something truly amazing happens whenever we spend time with God, when we spend time in his word, when we spend time worshiping. There should be something that transforms within us. It's a transformation that no beauty treatment in the world can mimic. 
Not only do we reflect his glory, but we find that he's molding us into his image. John Corson says, when you get to heaven, the throne will catch your eye. The one on the throne will warm your heart. The crystal sea before the throne will bring you peace. If you haven't done so lately, I encourage you to take time and sit in the presence of the Lord, to think on him, to talk to him, and you'll find that the troubled waters of your heart and soul become like glass. Why is it that we would sooner run out and try to make things right on our own than sit before the Lord? Anybody ever do that? We try to solve this and take care of that. Only to find ourselves troubled and upset and fatigued and frustrated. Don't wait until you get to heaven physically to experience the glassy sea of peace. Make time daily to take a trip to heaven in your spirit, to sit in the throne room. The opportunity is yours for the taking. You know, there's a few times in worship over the years of ministry where, where I've been worshiping and I felt like I was in the presence of God, like I was in the throne room. Can we not pursue that more? Lord, I just want to be in your presence. I'm not seeking anything other than your face, right? A lot of times we go to the Lord, even in worship, and we're like, we want something. We have an ulterior motive. The reality here is to just simply worship him. Again, I would ask you, are you sitting in God's presence? Are you making things right with him and through him? Are you truly trying to worship him in spirit and in truth? Or are you trying to do it on your own? We try to do it on our own and we end up where? A bigger mess. But if we press into him, then peace comes. The circumstances may not change, but there's peace and strength and endurance to be able to walk through those things. Amen? So, the exhortation, make time every day. The rest of the schedule stuff doesn't matter. Yeah, there's things you have to take care of, we all have to. But make time every day to be in the presence of the Lord. Last part of verse 6, and into the first part of verse 8. And in the center, around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature like the face of that of a man. The fourth creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. So comparing with the Ezekiel chapters 1 and chapters 10, we see these creatures are cherubim. I don't know about you, but if I saw that, my eyes would be wide open, paying attention to what's happening. These spectacular angelic, angelic beings surrounded the throne of God, and according to Ezekiel 28:14, Satan was once one of those high angelic beings. So cherubim were also prominent in the design of the tabernacle, particularly the most holy place in Exodus 25 and 26. The scripture shows us that the tabernacle is a model for the throne of God in some manner. Full of eyes in front and behind, full of eyes all around and within. That would definitely catch my eye. Their multitude of eyes indicating these living creatures are not blind instruments or robots. They know, they understand, they have a greater insight, they have a greater perception than any man could have. And these beings of great intelligence and understanding live their existence to worship God. All failure to truly worship is rooted in lack of seeing and understanding. Why do we struggle so hard to worship God? It's because we don't totally understand. 
Trapp says it this way, these are super intelligent beings, worship, they worship God, and it reminds us that our worship must be intelligent. Our service must not, must not be rash, but reasonable. Romans 12.1, such as where, wherefore we can render a reason, God hates blind sacrifice. A Samaritan's service, when men worship, they know not what nor why. That's blind, that was John 4.22. So the, the question then is, do you offer yourself as a living sacrifice as you worship, truly seeking his face, seeking his presence? Or are you just blindly worshiping? Oh, this is my oh, Sunday morning. Oh, I got to get to church so I can do that worship thing. I hold my arms at 45 degrees. I tilt my head at 15. I sing a little song. I try to be on tune. I don't clap because I have no rhythm. What is it that we do when we worship? Are we truly seeking his face? Or are we just going through the motions? Are you blindly worshiping God? See, Romans 12, 1 tells us, instructs us to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. It's us. We lay ourselves on the altar and we worship the Lord. That should be our perspective. John describes the, the faces of the four cherubim, a lion, a calf, a face like a man, like a flying eagle, each with a different face. And from comparison with Ezekiel 1, 6-10, we see that each of the cherubim have four faces. And at the moment, John saw each one of the four different faces pointed in his direction. And I don't know about you, but that would cause me to pause. I would definitely be taking that in. The significance of the four faces is interpreted in many ways. The four faces have been seen that they represent the elements, the, the cardinal virtues, the, the faculties and powers of the human soul, the patriarchal churches, the, the great apostles, the orders of churchmen, the principles of angels, just to name a few. And some commentators, some commentators say that the four creatures speak of the flags or standards of the head of the tribes of Israel as they're camped in four groups around the tabernacle in the wilderness. Poole explains it this way. These are the four creatures who, uh, portraitures, are in the four ensigns of the Israelites. On the flags that they had, they were marshaled into four companies, allotting the men of three tribes in each company. Judah's standard had a lion in its colors, according to Jacob's prophecy of the tribe. Ephraim had an ox. Reuben had a man. Dan, an eagle. The four different faces of the cherubim, and the third option are often taken as symbols of Jesus as represented in each of the Gospels. In classical church architecture, these four characters are repeated often as a motif that signifies both heaven and the four Gospels. But because there's no specific connection with the four faces, the cherubim and, and a particular Gospel, different traditions, and now we say traditions, that's men doing something historically, not biblical context, right? These traditions have connected these four faces of the cherubim in different ways. Some see Matthew as the lion gospel, showing Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark as the ox gospel, showing that Jesus is a humble servant, a worker. Luke as the man gospel, showing Jesus as the perfect man and second Adam. John is seen as the eagle gospel, showing that Jesus is the man from heaven with the sky. Still, this approach also has many other interpretations, and I'm not going to go into all of them. 
but perhaps it's safest to say that these four faces are important because they represent all animate creation in its utmost excellence. The lion, the mightiest of the wild animals, the ox, the strongest of the domesticated animals, the eagle, the king of all birds, and the man, highest of all of God's creation. Clark says these creatures may be considered the representatives of the whole creation. Trapp says that these cherubim are qualified with all the necessary endowments for the discharge of their duties, being bold as lions, strong as oxen, prudent as men, and delighted in high-flying as eagles. Simply said, just when we think we can grasp God's creative power, then we have creatures like this we can barely understand or fathom the description of. We now get a picture of the activity that is happening around the throne of God in the last part of verse 8. Day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. The living creatures are constantly worshiping God and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy. And how frustrated do we get at times where we have a song that has a chorus that's repeated seven times. It's nonstop. Holy, holy, holy. God's holy nature and character is declared. It's emphasized as a three-time repetition. Johnson tells us in Hebrews, the double repetition of a word adds emphasis. But the rare threefold repetition designates a superlative and it calls attention to the infinite holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is he. And they do not cease. They do not rest, yet they have no unrest neither. They are content to carry out their duties. The cherubim declare that the Lord God is almighty. And in Revelation 1.8, the ancient Greek word is, is pantocrator. The idea is that the one who has his hand on everything, that's the reminder, God is in control. He's in control of creation. He's in control of things when they're going well. And he's in control of judgment that happens. He's in control of things that we don't see as going so well. He has his hand on everything. God is the author and the creator of everything we know, and even of that which we don't know. Like our minds are finite. We can't, we can't possibly understand everything, but he is in charge of it all. They declare who was, who is, and who is to come. This is, repeats another idea from Revelation 1.8. It refers to God's eternal being. It translates the thought behind the meaning of the name Yahweh. So back to the earlier question. How is your worship? Are you laying it all out there? Can you state in, in a time of worship, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come? Can you do that with passion? Can you do that with faith? Can you see and understand the importance of genuine worship? I've seen some amazing miracles happen in an altar during a worship service where nobody was being prayed over. They just came up to worship the Lord and God touched them. Not because they were seeking anything other than his face. How powerful is worship? Now the scene unfolds and we have 24 elders and they worship the enthroned God 
verses 9 through 11, Revelation 4. And when living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. How's that for a worship proclamation? The worship of the 24 elders is prompted by the cherubim. And since the cherubim are worshiping God day and night, so the elders do as well. Knowing angels should worship God should prompt our worship also. Do we have any less to praise God for? We tend to go so negative so quick, don't we? That's why the news outlets are so large. And so powerful because it's negative. We tend to do the same thing. Spurgeon from Holy Song from Happy Saints says this, Do we sing as much as the birds do? Yet what have the birds to sing about compared with us? Do we sing as much as the angels do? Yet they were never redeemed by the blood of Christ. Birds of the air, shall you excel me? Angels, shall you exceed me? You have done so, but I intend to emulate you. And day by day and night by night pour forth my soul in sacred song. That's my prayer for us. And that this thought would drive us even deeper in our worship of God, of who he is, that we would truly engage. The 24 elders worship, which means they give credit they give worth, they give worthiness to God. The elders created, uh, credited God for their own work and reward. And they did this as they cast their crowns before the throne. They recognized that the worth and the worthiness that they had belonged to God. That's operating in humility and not of themselves. The casting of the crown simply acted out their declaration, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. If God was worthy of the glory and honor and power, then he indeed should get the crowns as well. There's also an allusion to the practice in the Roman Empire. The emperor of Rome usually ruled over many lesser kings, and these kings were at times commanded to come before the emperor and lay down their crowns before him in homage. Then he would give them back to him as a demonstration that their crowns, their right to rule, their victory came from him. These crowns mentioned in Revelation 4.10 are... Stephanos crowns. They're, they're crowns of victory, not of royalty. These are crowns of achievement, of winning, like a winning athlete would get in the Olympian Games. The 24 elders representing all the redeemed of God, they threw every achievement and re reward that they had back to God because they knew and proclaimed that he was worthy to receive glory and honor and power. So quickly we want to hold that to ourselves. Oh, I achieved this thing. Oh, I did this well. This is all about me. No. God, I give you glory. I give you honor. Our text says that they cast all their crowns before the throne. You see, all of them all cast their crowns. There are no divided opinions in heaven. There are no denominations or parties, no schisms there. They're all in perfect harmony and sweet accord. What one does, all do. They cast their crowns without exception before the throne. 
May we begin to practice the combined unity here as we worship before the Lord. As fellow Christians, let us get rid of everything that would divide us from each other and separate us from the Lord. I don't read here that, that there was a single elder who envied his brother's crown and said, oh, I wish I was the same as him and I wish I had his crown. I don't read that one of them began to find fault with his brother's crown saying, oh, his jewels might be bright, but mine have a peculiar tint to them and they're of greater value and out of greater perfection. I don't read of any dissension here. It's unanimous as they cast their crowns at Jesus' feet. They were unanimous in glorifying God. They did it together. 24 elders worshiped God because of his creative power and glory. The fact that God is the creator gives him every right and claim over everything, even as a potter has all the rights and claims over the clay that he is forming. Romans 9.21, or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for common use? You see, God's right over us as creator is a fact that can be accepted and enjoyed as he molds us, or it can be rejected, leading to frustration. And there is tremendous value in us recognizing, in our recognizing of our creatureliness before God. We are creatures that he created. He's molding us into what he wants us to be. You see, when the Lord places us in that potter's wheel, he allows pressure to be applied at just the right places to transform us into the people that he created us to be. That process is painful. Because when we're humbly broken is when he can use us the most powerfully. And just as the artist dips their hands in the water to reduce the friction on the clay, God handles us with his love. So we trust in him to shape us as he needs to. And that's where we come back in humility before the Lord. We humble ourselves before him knowing he will lift us up. It's in that humility that he shapes us. So I would ask you that question then, are you allowing God to mold you and shape you into what he wants you to be? Or are you fighting against it? If you've been a Christian for a little while, you may know the King James Version of, of Revelation 4.11. I've heard it often. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That's a powerful verse. A wonderful phrase, for all that pleasure, they were created. They are and were created. It reminds us that we each exist to give glory and pleasure to God. That's why we're here. And until we do that, we don't fulfill our created purpose. You and I must engage in our faith now. We've got to allow him to mold us into all that he wants us to be, into all that he wants us to do, especially in the time that we live in right now. It's so important. His return is rapidly approaching. Are you ready? Are you ready, church? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for wanting to communicate with us. I pray, Father, that you would continue to open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to discern not only what you are saying, but, but what we're to do with this information. Thank you that, 
that you are going to pull us out of this place before judgment comes. Help us be ready. Help us and give us a greater sense of urgency to share the hope that we have with everyone that you bring across our path. God, you have us here for a reason in this season. Let us be obedient to you. Thank you for the visual that you've given John to share with us of, of your throne room and the activity that is there, that you are sovereign and that the Holy Spirit is active in your faultless and perfect plan. Thank you that you rule the earth and every individual in it and on it on the basis of your eternal holiness and your perfect judgment. That you evaluate every situation and can tell us what is coming because you inhabit eternity. You exist from the infinite past forever without end. And there is no one like you. And only you are worthy of praise. As our creator, you are worthy of praise and adoration. We are merely a reflection of your glory. How we know this will be abundantly clear when we reach heaven. All who know you will see you in, in your beauty and holiness and power and majesty and will worship you. We'll lay our crowns at your feet, giving you glory and honor that you deserve. But Lord, would you help us do that even now, to worship you, to be all in. In Jesus' name. I would ask you this morning, as I do in every Sunday morning, as we close out the service, are you confident that you're going to heaven? Are you confident that you have a relationship with God, you have that restored relationship, and you know that, that as, a, as he returns that you're going to go to heaven? I'm confident. I know where I'm going. Are you confident? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You can do that this morning, whether you're in this room or you're listening online. You can be sure that heaven is your destination by simply asking God for forgiveness and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's that simple. It's repenting and believing. Repenting of the compromise, the sin, the corruption, the things in your life that, that are not of God. There's things that have been dictating your life and it's laying them down before him. He takes you right where you are. You don't have to get anything cleaned up to get there. It just takes you right where you're at. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're going to say a quick prayer. Simple conversation from your heart to God's heart. You can say the same words as me or you can pray your own. But pray something like this. Dear God, please help. I cannot live like this any longer. I want to be assured that I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. I confess that Jesus is Lord and I believe that you raised him from the dead. And because of that, I repent Forgive me of my sins. I turn from them. From this point forward, I'm heading in a new direction. Help me to serve you and to honor you in all that I do. And help me to share the hope that I have now with others. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you prayed that prayer in this room, I'd love to chat with you. If you prayed it online, shoot me an email, scott at foothillscalvary.org. a live and powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.